everyone, it is like midnight, my time. I just want to say I love you all. You're such good people. You're so special. I love you all. Gold stickers for everyone. Uh, I actually did this interview two-ish weeks ago in the middle of the workday, and Luca told me he can't record in the middle of the workday, so I just didn't even bother telling Luke that I was recording with Dr. Han. Good times. I got a PDF of his book, Holy Is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. And let me tell you, I own all of Dr. Han's books. I love all of Dr. Han's books. He just takes one subject, does a deep dive into it. It's great. But I'll say this. I was genuinely surprised at the insights found in this book. Like, genuinely surprised. It was awesome. And so we get to chit-chat. Yes, his audio isn't that great. My stupid online recording software did not do a good job. So you'll have to deal with it. I tried to clean it up as best I could. But it is as if uh, he's going through a wind tunnel on a cell phone from 1986 uh, and the battery's about to die. But you can still, when he talks, you can make out his voice totally clearly. So... I apologize for that. Uh, Also today, we have our sponsor, very special sponsor, which is Buy Our Merchandise. We actually have merchandise. We never talk about it, but we got shirts. We got onesies for baby or daddy. I'm not going to judge you. We got good stuff over on the merchandise store. And the merchandise address is catching-foxes.myspreadshop.com. It's a MySpreadshop, which is great. They host all the merch. You click it. You, you, you pay a lot of money, but that covers the shipping or whatever. I don't really know. Anywho, this is four years too late. The Catching Foxes stuff is awesome. We paid an artist to design the work. If you haven't been on there, buy a Puddin' Cup t-shirt for yourself and Demi Lovato. Link in the show notes, of course, always and forever. Love you guys. You can get Scott Hahn's new book off Amazon and any other fine retailers. I'd recommend you just go and like to the St. Paul Center. St. Paul Center is just so good. Buy yourself a copy. It'll be great. Bye. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Scott Hahn, the man, the myth, the legend. How do you do, Dr. Hahn? How are you? I'm doing really well, Mike. Good to hear from you. Yeah. So are you, uh, are you teaching? What classes are you teaching right now at uh, the old Franny, at the mothership? So I'm teaching an undergraduate course on Word of God, Scripture, and Tradition, Theology 110. Uh, I've got about uh, 70 students in there in Pugliese Auditorium. And then I've also got a graduate course in the Gospel of John that I just came from. And uh, sure enjoy that. We get about 25 or 30 MA students in that. That's awesome. I actually had my, uh, I took, uh, I think it was an undergrad class with Dr. Bergsma. His very first year as a professor, he taught Gospel of John. Uh, we did Johannine writings. And we did, so we did John. And then uh, we only made it to, to second John. And uh, class was over. The semester ran up. I'm surprised we actually got through the Gospel, honestly. But uh, loved that class. That was great. Yeah, he's awesome. So, uh, but let's not talk about him. Let's talk about you. What are you up to now? St. Paul Center is incredible. Um, the Emmaus Road uh, books, uh, the the Emmaus Academic. Me and uh, Father <laughs> Father David Huss lose half of our paycheck uh, every time y'all have a sale. Uh, everything like Dr. Lawrence Feingold, man, we own everything. That guy is so brilliant. I love it. He sure is. Yeah. Yeah. So we just celebrated our 20th anniversary of the St. Paul Center last fall. We're getting ready to go back to Florida next month for our 21st annual gala. And uh, we've also broken ground on the new building uh, located right across the street from the entrance to Franciscan University, the back entrance. 
so where the uh, car wash used to be, you might remember. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's going to be 25,000 square feet, huge, on two acres. The university not only sold it to us, but they sold it to us for a song. Uh, they cut the price in half of what they purchased. And then uh, Father Dave Bavanka, our president, uh, took off an additional quarter million so that we ended up getting it, the land for 350. We have such a close partnership, such a tight collaboration. We're officially an affiliate of the university. Mm. We have over 40 full-time employees, about a dozen part-time, and a number of student interns and that kind of thing. And our mission is still the same as it was, teaching Catholics to read Scripture from the heart of the church. But we're, we're much more advanced than I ever imagined us to be with biblical literacy for lay people, biblical fluency for clergy. But really, reading Scripture from the heart of the church means reading it liturgically, sacramentally, eucharistically. So it's not just Christ fulfilling the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit renewing that fulfillment in our lives through the sacraments, but also through just living out the life of Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to reproduce in us the Son of God. Yeah. So there you go. That's awesome. Yeah, I was doing, uh, I do pretty prison ministry fairly often. You know, COVID kind of ruined all things. But uh, when they opened up the doors, we started going back into this one maximum security men's prison that I go to down here in Texas. No air conditioning. No air conditioning in there, um, except in the offices in the chapel. But um, so we do, uh, we do a lot of this stuff and we, we have these, it centers on these retreats that we do. And one of them was, uh, they, they asked me to come in on the second one and I had second, third, fourth, it changed my life, but I was there, the Q and a guy and they would do these impromptu Q and A's. And it was funny because the first set of Q and A's that I would do, they're all, it's an incredibly anti-Catholic environment in the prisons. Um, most, uh, most of the Catholics are Hispanic and most of the Hispanics who practice their, any type of Christian faith are converts to some sort of fundamentalism in the prisons. And so um, they, they hate us deeply. There's, there's a lot of animosity, let me put it that way. And so the first two Q&A sessions are, uh, let me tell you a question, you know, <laughs> instead of ask a question. Right. But then after a while, they were like, oh, wait. They, there's a lot here. Okay, well, well, what do you think about this? And what is Paul trying to say over here? And it became like this totally different thing. But one of the things I realized coming out of that environment was, you know, you're there. Why do you worship a cookie? You know, and why do you worship Mary? You know, they say all these things. For them, Jesus is, you know, he accomplished. I put my faith on him, and therefore I'm saved, and that's it. And you Catholics take the simple saving work of the gospel and you add to it with all your, the the word I'm coming uh, to discover more and more is accretions. You just keep adding and adding your baptism, your confirmation, your pope. And I realize, like, honestly, like taking the salvation history look at scripture, you realize that liturgy, sacraments, like this is not something we add on. This is instrumental in every step of the way. And when you realize, like, Moses steps off the boat. The first thing he does is build an altar, right? Like, how did they how did they get delivered from Egypt? They had a sacred meal, right? You know, the the, the Paschal Lamb. Like, this is a liturgical thing over and over and over again. God liberates and works in and through matter, you know, sacramentally and all this stuff. And when that opened, when I when I made it more explicit, like it changed the whole tone for prison ministry down here. Changed the whole tone. And I and I just I keep thinking like I had these two things. I had like salvation history over here. And my little proof text for apologetics here, but then here was the sacraments and bringing these together, which I think your new book does marvelously well. Um, yeah, it's been a game changer. Well, thank you. And speaking of my new book, 
Uh, it is entitled, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. I think it's like the 12th or 13th book I have published with Emmaus Road. And Emmaus Road was actually founded back in 1996, so 26 years ago. Oh, Curtis nice. Martin, Tim Gray, Ted Sri, and I, after they'd all graduated from Franciscan University, we started, we started up Emmaus Road. And then within the last eight years or so, uh, there's been a reunion. The St. Paul Center has made Emmaus Road its own, its publishing arm, as well as what you mentioned, Emmaus Academic. We're coming out with about 20 books a year through Emmaus Academic. Garagula Grand, Shaben, Feingold, as you mentioned. And then Emmaus Road is coming out uh, more popular books, about 40 a year, including this new one, Holy is His Name, which I've been working on for years and years. But I think the idea of holiness captures the difference between what you were referencing a minute ago in terms of the evangelical, the fundamentalist, the Protestant, who just wants to be saved. And that's a good thing because we're all sinners and so we need to be forgiven. But if salvation is just nothing more than forgiveness, then there really isn't any point to having the sun die and rise and undergo all of that torture. Mm-hmm. You know, if Allah can forgive someone who repents, certainly our God can too. Yeah. But Salvation is so much more than forgiveness of sins. It's more than healing. It really is taking sinners and turning them into saints. And so the idea of holiness is front and center. You know, it's the uh, the Holy Eucharist, the sacraments, the seven sacraments. It's the Holy Father. It's the, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saint Mary. It's all of the saints. And so holiness just takes on center stage here for the Catholic faith. But the problem is... Most people don't really know what holiness is and and how it differs from what we would describe as righteousness. Mm -hmm. That is, ethical rectitude, moral goodness, keeping the commandments. That is inseparable from holiness, but it's entirely distinct. And that discovery took place in my experience over the course of several years of study and research. Yeah, I love how you started off the book. You hit two themes in, in the first the the first part that really uh it made me smile the whole time because the two things i constantly battle in the world of evangelization and catechetics is we have denied the faithful the full rigor of the gospel right pope john paul ii and catechesi tridenti talked about the rigor and the vigor of the gospel it's life-giving but it's also challenging right and when you think about all the demands that you know the gospel take up your cross and follow me when you replace that with L-U-V love, and that's all you ever hear constantly, day in and day out. Well, God loves you. Jesus loves you. The word love means almost nothing. It doesn't mean self-sacrifice. It doesn't mean you know willing the good. So you nail that. But then you also nail it by, for me, it was um, your, your – and I know you've talked about him before, but R.C. Sproul and how he kind of taught you, you know, uh, the idea of the holy and the holiness of God in Scripture. And I, two years ago, did a deep dive – in all things Reformed theology from a popular preacher perspective, because a lot of my converts were coming from there. And I spent the majority, I mean, you got your uh, John MacArthur's, but R.C. Sproul, he's so jovial and, you know, he's, he is he is such a teacher, preacher, par excellence, you know. So I love that you, you kind of brought that in there and, and in order to open up this, this dive into holiness. Yeah, I mean, R.C. Sproul, God rest his soul, was my mentor in high school and in college, and I, I spent a lot of time with him. Um, I spent three weeks down in Ligonier, Pennsylvania at the study center, getting to know him and Vesta, his wife, and ended up teaching his son, R.C. Jr., at Grove City College. You know, but the thing that he did for me 
was right after my conversion, when I was barely 14, I was going to a church where it was just all about love. Now, if you're a member of the Beatles and, you know, a magical mystery tour, <laughs> all you need is love, Woodstock and all of that, it's fine. But, I mean, to equate Christianity with that kind of love is a total distortion. It reminds me, and I mentioned this in the book, of, of how H. Richard Niebuhr described yeah. American Christianity as a God without wrath, uh, brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ, without a cross. And that described my Presbyterian congregation when I was 14. And so I was looking, I was in search of something much more substantive. And boy, did I find it from R.C. Sproul. I would drive down, I would have my youth pastor drive me down uh, to the study center most Mondays for two and a half hours of a lecture, and then what he called the gab fest and that kind of thing. <laughs> a lot of uh, table talk, as he also quoted yeah. Luther. And and what he did at the time later became the book, The Holiness of God, his runaway bestseller, probably his most influential book. Yeah. And he was looking at, you know, the experience of Moses at the burning bush. He was looking at Isaiah in chapter 6 when he's in the temple, the year that King Uzziah dies, and the seraphim are singing, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah doesn't say, oh, wow, that's so cool. I mean, woe <laughs> is me. I am a man, you know, I am doomed to die. I'm a man of unclean lips. And so he was talking about the trauma of encountering the holiness of God. And this was so distinct from that bland form of cheap grace, you know, and Christianity that was just so undemanding. And on the other hand, when I listened to him, and I learned so much from him, he steered me to read the great classic by Rudolf Otto, The Idea of the Holy, which he quoted extensively, all about when sinners encounter the holy God. It is mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It's a, it's a mystery to be sure. It causes us to tremble, and yet it also fascinates. And so Moses is confronting the holy God, Take off your shoes for the ground that you're standing on is holy. And he turns away. He cannot look at the bush, and yet he's enthralled. He's fascinated. And, and so that grabbed me because that was the kind of God I wanted to encounter. I wanted to get to know a God who isn't just mercy, 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 love, 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 but holiness. It's not just one attribute among many. No, his power is holy. His love is holy. His mercy is his justice, all of these things, and yet at the same time I began to sense that what Dr. Sproul was doing was describing the subjective experience that we have when we encounter God's holiness, which is not the same thing as the objective reality and the mystery of God's holiness. And so I wanted to get beyond the phenomenology of our experience or our encounter with God's holiness. And so what you do when you study Kodesh in Scripture is you encounter some unexpected turns as you proceed. At least I have over the last 25, 35, you know, 40 years of study. The catechism, I think, does the best job of summarizing and synthesizing the difference between the reality of God's holiness, which is mystery, and our encounter with that mystery, which is both, you know, tremendum et fascinans. It, it fascinates and it, it causes us to tremble out of a kind of fear. In 2809, I begin the book by quoting this, The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. It's off limits. I mean, 
more than just manifesting his wisdom and power in creation. The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. What is revealed of it in creation and history, that's what scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. And so you see a bush that is burning and yet is not consumed. You, you see the seraphim hiding their face before the glory of God. And so the created experience of that majesty, of that radiance, is one thing. But the reality of God's holiness is so different. You know, and it reminds me on the one hand of what we read in Hebrews twelve fourteen: Strive for holiness, for without it you will never see God. And so what is it to see God? What is the beatific vision? It's to be drawn into this inaccessible center of his own inner life, his own eternal majesty, which is love, but a love that goes beyond any romance, any human experience. And so you've got to strive for that. But on the other hand, as you know, Mike, you've got to acknowledge that I could strive 24-7. I could strive every day of my life. But this is not only inaccessible, this is unattainable. There is no way by natural human effort we can ever achieve the holiness of God, not even a vision of it. And so this is why in the beginning, as I focus on the the unveiling of holiness in salvation history, you see in the book of Genesis, 50 chapters long, only one occurrence of Kodesh, that is holiness. And it comes at the very beginning where God creates in six days and then he sanctifies, he consecrates, he hallows the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, which is the sign of the covenant. And that covenant isn't just between the creator and creation. That covenant is between the creator and the only creature who bears the image and likeness of God, so that when God breathes into the nostrils of our first father, the breath of life, he becomes a living being. What do you call that? Well, it's not just oxygen, it's the breath of God. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit. Theologians refer to that as sanctifying grace. That's the mystery of life that goes beyond the human, the natural, the physical. This is divine. This is spiritual, but it's eternal life. So we have two forms of life that are distinct, but inseparable, the natural and the supernatural. So when God says, just ten verses later, you can eat from all of the all of the trees except that one, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent says, go ahead, you, you'll eat it, you won't die. And so they did, but they didn't drop dead. But they did snuff out the life of God in their soul. It's called mortal sin. It's called spiritual suicide. It's what the catechism calls the death of the soul. So what a bullet does to the brain and then the body through death, mortal sin did to our first father, so that original sin is not being born depraved like Calvinists said, but it's being born deprived of divine life like St. Paul teaches in Romans 6. And so from that point on, from, from Genesis chapter 2 on, the word holiness never occurs again in 50 chapters of Genesis because of the catastrophic effects of original sin and what our first parents do in transmitting life that is only human and natural. And we are born but utterly devoid of that life that is divine, eternal, and supernatural. So ultimately you have this thing called the Exodus. And in just 40 chapters, there's this explosion of the terminology for holiness, Kodesh, 
Kedushin and so on. It was it was so amazing reading that because I got the book a couple days ago in the mail and I had the PDF and I had gone through the first couple chapters with the PDF. But then I was, <laughs> I was actually 20 minutes late for work because I was standing in the bathroom with the shower going and I was reading through. I, I, I thought this was so fascinating. I said this to my wife this morning. She came down for her, her morning coffee and prayer. I was like, honey, honey, do you realize that it isn't until Daniel that the word holy never applies to a person? It applies to objects. It applies to the concept of Israel as a people, but not to individuals until the prophecy in Daniel 7. And like just going through and I was like, I never even – you see that, right? Like the setting apart of the Sabbath, right? You have the Sabbath. It's set apart. It's holy. God makes it holy. But then nothing, right? No other mention of being set apart, being separated out for – for God. Now there's holy things like you point out, like there's the Jacob's ladder and there's altars of the, of the, um, the pa- uh, patriarchs and their worship. But then you get into Exodus and like you said, from, from what the, the burning bush onward, holy, 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 right? Yeah, 98 times you find Kodesh in Exodus, only 40 chapters. And you know, for most people, that's not a big deal because you do find terms like righteousness in Genesis yeah. being applied to the patriarchs. And for most Christians, righteousness and holiness are synonymous. They're interchangeable. And yet, what you discover when you delve into the law and the prophets is that, no, in ancient Israel, you clearly distinguish righteousness from holiness, justice from sanctity. Now, you don't distinguish in order to divide or to oppose them, obviously. So what is the difference between holiness, which no longer occurs in Genesis, and righteousness. Well, I think a rabbi clarified it for me by pointing out to what is the highest of the 613 commandments to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6.5. But the second is like unto it, and that is love your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus 19.18. We tend to forget that those laws are found in the Old Testament, which is why Jesus could answer the lawyer's question, what is the greatest commandment? But in the other account, of the Synoptic Gospels, the lawyer answers the question rightly by citing those two texts. So when you look at the law, you think of the Ten Commandments, but you can basically distinguish the first table of the Decalogue, the first three commandments, from the second table, and that is the last seven commandments, because the first three are vertical, they're Godward. Have no other gods before me, don't take my holy name in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, And then, that's holiness. Whereas the last seven commandments that we've got to fulfill are about the love of neighbor, starting with our parents and all the way down to our neighbor's property that we shouldn't be coveting. And so to see that holiness is the sanctifying grace that we had but lost, that enables us to fulfill righteousness. You know, and so holiness is the sphere of the temple and the priest, whereas righteousness is administered from the palace by the king. Holiness is the seventh day, the Sabbath. Righteousness is what we do for six days. Through hard work, we consecrate the fruit of our labor on the seventh day by offering it in the liturgy. Work is sanctified through worship. And so we distinguish in order to unite, but not confuse and not divide. And, you know, as Sproul taught me way back in the 70s, most of the task of theologizing consists of making proper distinctions. With regard to the Holy Trinity, one nature, three persons. With regard to Christ, the Holy One of God, 
one person, two natures. And likewise, with regard to the Paschal mystery, you've got matter and form, you've got substance and accidents, and so on. And so theologians hardly ever get around to distinguishing holiness from righteousness. The love of God with all of our being and the love of neighbor as oneself, but always and only for the love of God. And so when you get that right, you can coordinate love of God with the love of neighbor, but you have to subordinate the righteousness of keeping commandments to the holiness of keeping communion with God and all of the people of God. And so, again, we're distinguishing not to oppose, but also not to confuse, because that's what most people do. And Protestants are so fond of telling Catholics, oh, you confuse sanctification with justification. And it's like, oh, no, 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 it's the the other way around. Now, I say, au contraire, mon frère. Look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. And for a Protestant, it's like, wait, back up, Paul, you got that reversed. No, you want to say you were justified by faith, and that is punctiliar. That's a point in the past. And then sanctification is the process of becoming holy. Whereas, no, that's not exactly what Paul means. You were washed, that means baptism, restores sanctifying grace. You were washed, you were sanctified, and then you're declared to be justified because you now participate in the justice of Christ's own divine sonship. And so Paul so frequently kind of zigs where the Protestant zags. You're like, wait, no, you ought to say it some other way. But why did he say it this way? Because holiness is the sine qua non. You need sanctifying grace to exercise the faith that justifies. And just as you can grow in faith and righteousness, so you also have to grow in holiness. You know, one thing consists of the commandments being kept. The other one has to do with the primordial relationship that we have that comes before all of the others. Even before I'm related to my father and mother, I'm related to God. Their sperm and egg cause my body to come into existence as a zygote. But the spiritual substance of my soul, the mystery of who I am as a person, that is what was created by God out of nothing. And then, of course, the soul and the body come together, but we distinguish the physical from the spiritual to show how our soul relates us to God before we even are born to discover our parents. And so from Scripture, from philosophy, from anthropology, you know, all of theology has got to be informed by these first principles. And if we get it wrong in the beginning, it almost doesn't matter whether we get it right later on, because if you set on a journey and you make your first turn in a wrong way, you can follow the directions every single step of the way from that on, that point on, but you're going to end up in a completely different place than where you set out to be. Yeah, as the old Yiddish proverb, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think about that. I think about this conversation with holiness because we, as a church in America, we we like have this allergy to holiness because holiness makes you strip off your shoes. It makes you fall on your knees and say, "Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man." Right? That's what being in the presence of God, who terrifies me because I'm a sinner, yet uh, what fascinates me because He's my Savior. Right? Like we're drawn to that, but. In our, in our kind of context of the church in America today, we've been going through decades upon decades of educating people's desires, their pre-rational desires, to think of God 
as a giant warm fuzzy, That's right. right? As this, a sentimental, um, you know, doting father, crazy uncle, you know, grandfather that comes to town, spoils you and disappears. Um, but the idea of like, like when I walk into a church to genuflect towards the true presence of Christ is because he is holy and he deserves this like he he only is is worthy of this and these actions so the the kind of the funny thing with this when um when one of your coworkers uh reached out to me about the book and when maria um, sent me the email i was like yes i want to do this because we're overhauling our we do this little tour of the church for kids in sack prep and uh, i told them like i, I rewrote it <laughs> it's like a self-guided tour this is where the holy oils are this is where the baptismal font is this is where and this last year we keep people out of the sanctuary we don't let people wander and they were like, well, why can't we go in the sanctuary? And it's like, because that's holy. That's reserved. I know there's no altar rail here, uh, but that's what that space is for us. And we wanted to make it as dramatic as possible. Like, don't go there. So we put the, you know, we have the vestments on display so they can see the different kinds of vestments. And it's like, don't touch those. Those are reserved. Those are set apart. Those are holy. So I, we had so many uh, adults that just happened to be around the church when it was going on. They're like, can I take a tour of the church? And so I rewrote it for an adult perspective, right? And the first three pages are just, what does it mean to be a people set apart, to have objects, items, you know, all this stuff set apart to make something holy. And once you realize something is holy, it's not just, you can't tame the deity. Like we're so obsessed with this. I found that it's actually the hardest part, but like Catholics who get it, they're like, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense that not only that Christ offered himself as a living sacrifice, but now my life, as St. Paul talks about, is a living sacrifice. So I am called to be holy. Like it, it, it weaves its way in my liturgy, like all this stuff. But we're so, um, we're so fixated on making church approachable and comfortable for you know the lost, the seeking, whomever, that we've made the deity familiar and we've completely lost the transcendence. But the funny thing is the only way to get the imminence is because he's first transcendent. He's so above that he can be within if only I come to him, right? And so that's the kind of like liturgical war stuff in the background. I'm like, we're losing the context of holy, 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 right? Yeah, I mean, we really have lost it as a, a culture and a civilization. You go back 500 years and you will discover, you know, in the Enlightenment, but really even in the Renaissance, man is the measure. And so yeah. you see a shift to anthropocentricity, you know, where man is the center. And that's just not true. I mean, what, what we have done in the last century or so is to accommodate ourselves to a kind of anthropocentric culture that reduces man to being the measure of all things. And so Christian humanism, I get it. I mean, Pope John Paul spoke that way and made it meaningful. But I would say a better way to describe it is, as a former student of mine, Clem Harold said, it's theocentric humanism. Why? Because God is the source of all being. He is the goal and the end of all being. And so it's a form of just reality therapy. That is, adjust your life, your thoughts, your actions, your decisions to the way things really are. And God is the center. You're not. God is out to bless us more than we could ever bless ourselves. But you've got to start off with the first three commandments, not because God wants to be worshipped as an egomaniac. No, he gets nothing from our worship, but we get everything from our worship of him, so he's able to fill us with what is properly his, that is holiness, in order to empower us to do what is properly ours, and that is righteousness, justification, 
that is keeping the commandments and all of the rest. And so, you know, I, I already made some distinctions between that religion that Niebuhr described from the religion that Sproul challenged us to embrace. And then I also distinguish between holiness, which is proper to God and only to God, from that majesty, from that glory which we experience when we approach him. But you also mentioned, Mike, the distinction not only between what we find in Genesis, only one occurrence, and Exodus, where we find 98 occurrences of holiness, it's always the holy place, the holy ground, the holy assembly, the holy nation, the holy garments, the altar, the tent, the ark, and all of that. But nobody is ever called a saint. Everybody's called to holiness, but nobody is ever described by God as being holy. And leave it to a rabbi, a good friend, a, an amazing scholar, Rabbi Joshua Berman, who pointed this out to me and his readers years ago, that in the Hebrew Bible, nobody's ever referred to as a saint. Well, I discovered that that's not exactly true, because in Daniel 7, as you alluded to this, it isn't somebody being referred to as a saint. It's more of an oracle pointing to the future, where Daniel sees in chapter 7, 13, what happens as a result of the Son of Man overcoming the fourth beast, Rome, and he comes on the clouds of glory to be presented to the Ancient of Days to get this universal kingdom, this everlasting dominion. But, I mean, if he's the Son of God, he had it from all eternity. So what's the point? Well, the second half of Daniel 7 is the exception that proves the rule because the kingdom that the Son of Man gets, he turns around and entrusts this to the, quote, saints of the Most High. Well, who are they? Well, we're not given any names because the Son of Man has not come yet, much less has he ridden on the clouds of glory back to God the Father of the Ancient of Days to get this kingdom. But you can see, on the one hand, why Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man more than all of the other titles put together. And on the other hand, you can also see why in Matthew 27, that obscure little passage where after Jesus' resurrection, the tombs of these holy ones, the, the souls of the faithful departed in the Old Testament, had gone down to Hades, or in the Hebrew, Sheol. But then in Matthew 27, their tombs are open, and suddenly Christ's resurrection spills over to them, and you can see them for a few days, maybe a few weeks, until they're gone. And why? Because Jesus has not only ascended into heaven as the Son of Man on the clouds of glory to get this universal kingdom, he's now entrusted it to all of the saints of the Most High who endured, but now who inherit. And suddenly you step back and you realize that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he did nothing less than to repopulate heaven. In the Old Testament, all of the visions of heaven that the prophets describe shows us angels exclusively, the holy angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, and all the rest. But only in the New Testament, after the ascension, do you have the visions of John and others showing that heaven is now occupied not only by the angels, but by the saints, the martyrs, the elders, the twelve disciples, and all of that. And you're like, we didn't even notice this. But the communion of saints is established precisely by his life, death, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. The Paschal mystery is the hinge on which all of salvation history turns, and we barely even notice. Like kids in the back seat of a car, when their family's going on vacation, you pass these amazing sights, and you're like, okay, whatever, you know. And it's time for us to kind of seize that moment, seize what was, you know, what's become... We, we just take so much for granted, it's time to kind of go back and make up for lost time. 
Yeah. And one of the things that stood out to me so much was on page 35, you have this great line. Um, the law given to Moses is much more elaborate and it is almost entirely devoted to right worship. Many of the commandments concerning moral behavior, but these are presented as liturgical concerns, as a way for people to maintain their purity, remain holy and worthy to participate in worship in the common life of God's people. And it is amazing, right? When you think about that, like all these laws, rules, prescriptions, and, and the notion of clean and unclean and what makes you pure enough in order to enter into the temple to, do, to give God right praise. But when you begin to see morality through the, through the covenant lens, right? Like I'm, I'm being an adopted son or daughter. I'm being brought into the divine family. What Christ is by nature, I will be by grace. The, that is no small gift. And I think like so often we would rather have small gifts because it comes with smaller expectations, you know? But this idea of like, no, 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 be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Like this is the life of the family. Now here's the son who's going to live this life perfectly. And then he's going to breathe his Holy Spirit on you so you can live this life as well. Not so that you don't have to. But so that you can, you're able to, right? And then now you have St. Paul with his, you know, talking about the holiness explosion. Every letter pretty much is to the saints, to the saints, to the holy ones, to the faithful brethren, to the holy brethren, right? And you have this explosion of a new understanding. Like if Christ's body is the temple, if I'm incorporated in Christ, now my bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we're holy. We're holy. You know, that's the game changer. Yeah. I mean, this idea of divinization. I mean, at one level, we can appreciate the fact that God is a judge who pardons and acquits us because of what Christ has done. We also appreciate the divine physician for healing us of the effects of all of our sinful behavior. But ultimately, it's so much more than being pardoned and acquitted, being Mm -hmm. healed and being instructed. Divinization, as you just mentioned, you know, you were alluding to 2 Peter 1.4. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. How is that possible? It's not for us. But what God has done, the Father sent the Son of God to become the Son of Man, to assume our nature, to enable us to be made partakers of his nature. It's almost too good to be true, but it's the truth. It's the whole truth. It's nothing but this Catholic gospel truth that we have allowed, you know, dust to settle on, and layers of dust for that matter. When you blow it off, you're like, oh my goodness. You know, it's amazing how unamazed we are at a grace that goes beyond, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And, you know, this idea of what Paul is up to, you know, this was unthinkable for Saul and his fellow Pharisees. He had to be blinded, according to the flesh, there on the road to Damascus, in order to be given a supernatural vision. And that is the eyes of faith to see what God has done, not only by being born and tucked in a manger, but by dying and hung on a cross And then the resurrection is so much more than a resuscitation. It really is the deification of his humanity. But then in the Holy Eucharist, we get his resurrected and divinized body, blood, soul, and divinity. So the resurrection is done for the purpose of making his sacred humanity communicable. This is why he's not saying, I'll be downtown Jerusalem for the next 10 days. Come and see me and believe. His appearances are fleeting and invariably associated with things like taking, blessing, breaking, and giving, so that through the Holy Eucharist you'll realize he took what is ours to give us what is his. We get his body, blood, soul. Oh, yeah, and also his divinity. And you can't get the second person and not get the first and the third. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you can't get the three persons of the Godhead and not partake of the communion of saints. So in the Holy Eucharist, we become saints by basically swallowing the whole creed. 
I mean the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as well as all 12 of the mysteries that have been recounted. Yes, it's awesome. It's awesome because the when, the more we start bringing in holiness, right, um, in, back into our churches, back into our preaching, right, this is the other thing. I, I was talking with this priest one time, and listeners of the show are going to be like, oh, we hear the story all the time. But uh, this priest came to me one time. He's like, listen, I read Sherry Waddell's book. I, I'm, I'm ready to evangelize. I've been preaching the love of God. I've been preaching it. But I'm not, I'm not getting – she said expect um, – you know, have high expectations for people responding in faith. And I said, okay, well, tell me what you're preaching. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm talking a lot about the love of God. I'm not really talking about the judgment of God, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he, so he started going through that. And I said, okay, well, let me ask you this. When was the last time you told people to repent of their sin? When was the last time you talked about the gravity of what sin does to them as individuals and their relationship with God? And he, he looked at me and he goes, well, I don't think I've ever done that. And he's been a priest for maybe, I think this guy was maybe seven years. And I looked at him and I said, then what, what, are you, what is the good news? You're calling them out of something into something new, right? Like that, why would I be holy if the only thing was an extra hour I give to God on Sunday and that's it? Like Christ is calling you into a way of life where you have to get rid of these old things, right? Where the, the, the feudal ways of our fathers, right? You got to get rid of this stuff. You got to walk away. But we've, th- again, there's another manifestation of, well, we don't want people to feel put off, right? We don't want them to feel like they're on the outside. There's a, a, a Protestant uh, reform pastor guy, uh, Paul Washer. He's a, he's an intense guy. He's very intense. He's, he screams every time he gives a, a sermon. But uh, one of the, the, the images that he had was, um, it's like the king brought us to his kingdom, his capital city. He gave us a book on how to take care of his bride, and then he went away. And we started seeing, uh, you know, the bride in her beautiful wedding dress. And we look around, and people start wandering away from the kingdom. And where are you going? And he's like, well, you know, she's too prude, or she's not. It's not exciting enough. And so we stripped the bride of her wedding garment. We put her in a, you know, hot looking cocktail dress, and we paraded her around the town. And yeah, some people didn't leave. Some people were like, well, okay, maybe I'll stick around. And he's like, what do you think the king's going to do when he comes back and sees what you've done with his bride? And I remember just hearing that phrase, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, like that should fill me with a holy fear, right? Like, the, But there's no place for holy fear no. in a church without, without the cross, right? Right. I mean, on the one hand, Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and we reply, not amen, but yeah, whatever. I mean, <laughs> Meh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, we also recognize that if God was holy in the Old Testament, he didn't become less holy in the new. You know, with the fullness of revelation that Christ brings and the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all flesh, you know, without holiness, we not we will not see God. And I, I love what Paul reminds the Thessalonians of, and that is, you know, this is the will of God for you, First Thessalonians 4, verse 3. And I mean, we're always fussing over, well, what does God want? What is his will for me? My career, my spouse, my college major, my residence, and all of these things. And Paul just cuts to the chase. This is the will of God for you, namely, your sanctification. He's a holy God, and he gives us the Holy Spirit for us to become not just, you know, children, but to grow up and become saints. Paul does add, this is the will of God for you, namely, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, or another translation, sexual immorality. In the Greek, porneia. You can think about the rest of that, you know. But I mean... (laughs) A father does not want to kind of lock his kids into, look, if I want your thoughts, here, I'll give them to you. 
and if I want your words, I'll dictate those to you. No, there is a gift of freedom. But with that freedom, what we discover is the holiness, not without fear and trembling. But what I would say is, this is the true meaning of love. And when you're taking people through the church, but you're not just kind of walking through the sanctuary as though it's a museum or something, that is like the first baby step to rediscovering holiness. And holiness is the key to really rediscovering love. You know, in the Old Testament, they're servants. In John 15, 15, when he's gotten the, given the Eucharist, he says, I no longer call you servants. I now call you friends. They're loved ones. But when the beloved disciple himself, after years, you know, years after Jesus ascended into heaven, in the apocalypse, you see in John 1, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice. So I turned to see the one that was speaking to me. And I see the seven gold lampstands, the menorah that would stand in the Jerusalem temple, Jesus with his long robe, a holy priest. And when I saw him, what happens next? It isn't the beloved disciples saying, hey, long time, no see, you're looking good. No, I fell at his feet as though dead. And the angel doesn't say, oh, come on, John, get over yourself. You know, have you forgotten the mercy of God? No. The Lord laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not, I am the first. He doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. You just don't give in to that fear. Now that you've seen me, you know that your enemies are nothing to really be afraid of. So arise, I have the keys of death and Hades. I have died, I am risen, and I am the Lord of history. And with that, John can say, you know what? I haven't discovered less love than when I was reclining on your breast in the upper room. I've discovered this infinitude of love through seeing your holiness. And then let the race go on, because then the visions of John and the apocalypse suddenly make so much more sense And as I mentioned, or at least I alluded to earlier, there, just like Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament, where Isaiah hears the holy, 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 but looks and only sees angels, in Revelation 4, John hears that song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. But there he not only sees the angels, but the elders and the martyrs and all of these people, including the holy mother of the Messiah, and heaven is repopulated. But without holiness, you won't go there and ever feel at home. You know, the souls in hell hate it, but they'd hate heaven even more. The fire of hell is hot, but God is a consuming fire, like the burning bush. The the saints in heaven would freeze to death in the fires of hell. But there is where you see the holiness of God's love, his truth, his power, all of these things. But you really are being drawn into the inaccessible center of God's holiness because Heaven is not where we go to kind of catch a glimpse of the Trinity. In Revelation 21, John announces at the end of the visions a rather shocking thing, that in the New Jerusalem there is no temple. Well, that would be like in the New Washington, D.C., there's no capital, there's no Supreme Court, there's no Congress. These days we might welcome that, but, you know, (laughs) if you say there's a New Jerusalem and there is no temple, then it can't be Jerusalem. Well, except for one thing. The Lord God Almighty is the temple, along with the Lamb who sits upon the throne, and the living water that flows from them. So the Lord God is the Father, the Lamb is the Son, the living water is the Holy Spirit. When we enter heaven, we don't catch a glimpse of the Trinity. We are drawn into the inner life of the Holy Trinity, which is going to take all of our attempts to define holiness and just shatter them like new wine just breaks open the old skins. Yeah, which is why purgatory, you describe it as a holy fire, right? It has to purify 
my attachments to enter into this place where nothing unclean can enter it, right? This is, and that's temple language. We, we lose so much when we don't spend time in the Old Testament, when we don't immerse ourselves into that world, which is why salvation history and the salvation sacramental economy, it's so important to understand the old. It is so important. And it manifests, like when you look at the Adam and Eve, when you look at Noah, when you look at Abraham, when you look at Moses and Israel and David and the, and the kingdom, when you look at these things, there are different facets that are fulfilled in Christ and his church that each part of it, like I was listening to a um, Orthodox Metropolitan who was retired and he was like, you know, Jesus is not a sin offering on the cross. He's not a sin offering. He's a, he's a, he's the Paschal lamb. The Passover was not a sin offering. And I'm like, well. Book of Hebrews, all about that sin offering. It's all Yom Kippur from day one, right? Like, and the and it was funny because he was trying to attack the satisfaction theory of atonement, right? So, oh yeah, the, you know, got to kill, kill, got to kill someone, you know, and it's mostly a non-Catholic version of that. But as I yeah, as I begin to, that's not legal satisfaction, right, 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 right. And so the more I plunged into it, right? So every day I would read Romans, then I'd read Galatians, then I'd read Hebrews. And I just wanted to like immerse myself. So every day I'd read one of those three, not every, <laughs> before for my morning, like cup of coffee. And I just wanted to immerse myself in this imagery of how you could look at every one of the sacrifices in the Old Testament and see how they converge onto the person of Christ in a saving mission. And it's just amazing. So let's dive into Hebrews before we wrap up. Um, you have a whole chapter on Hebrews. It's the one chapter. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to it beforehand. But uh, how does the holiness of God in the book of Hebrews uh, express it? Yeah. Okay, let me let me take a step back and address things in terms of what you just said, because, you know, you're right. That metropolitan was off. You know, in Leviticus, the first five chapters identify five different forms of sacrifice. And everybody, you know, Jerome and Augustine and Aquinas all the way to today, see all five of these like spokes in the wheel that converge upon the hub. Christ's sacrifice is what all of those five sacrifices illuminate. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. But it's not just God getting his pound of flesh. That kind of penal substitution is identified with Luther and with Calvin. And it's wrong. It's distinct from what Anselm and Aquinas teach, which is vicarious satisfaction. You know, we would say it this way. Christ paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. But Christ didn't just kind of pay it off. What he gave the Father for our sake was infinitely more than what we robbed from God by our sin. As Aquinas says, it's a superabundance that what Christ is offering to God is infinitely more than what we took away from God. That's beautiful. It's not legalistic. On the other hand, the idea that, oh... God saw our sin, Jesus was willing to take the brunt of his wrath and bore it to the end. And so when God looks down, he can't see his son, he can only see our sin, and then he bashes him until he gets it out of the system. That is not only wrong, that's borderline blasphemous, and yet that's the version of the gospel that we often hear proclaimed. Penal substitution is wrong, we distinguish that from vicarious satisfaction. Christ paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. But you can't say in a courtroom that if the judge condemns to death an innocent man because he's willing to die so that the guilty person can go free, that's a colossal injustice. That's divine schizophrenia. We've got to make it clear. And then, of course, the book of Hebrews has more references to holiness and to sacrifice. It's the only book of the New Testament that explicitly identifies Christ as priest, high priest, and a royal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so what I'm doing in chapter 11 
the climax of the book is showing that the unstated premise behind all of Hebrews is the Holy Eucharist. You know, you might say, well, the word Eucharist doesn't occur anywhere in Hebrews. Well, the word Eucharist doesn't occur anywhere until the last two decades of the first century. So what is the Eucharist? Well, it's what Jesus called the covenant, the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, and this body, and this blood, and this sacrifice, and this remembrance. When you see the cluster of terms and images that you find in the institution narrative of the Gospels, what you see is not the term Eucharist there or in Hebrews, but what you see, in fact, is the covenant. Hebrews uses the word covenant over half the time of the occurrences of the new. So you have 17 out of 33 in Hebrews. You have two-thirds of the occurrences of new covenant in Hebrews. You have blood of the new covenant. You have the body and the blood. You also have doing this in remembrance. And so the idea that, well, wait a minute. Hebrews says it's once for all. And as a Protestant, I always assume that meant it's terminated. It's once for all. It's unrepeatable. That means it's over and done. But once for all does not necessarily mean terminated. It means perpetuated. If something is once for all, it's everlasting. Just like Jesus' high priesthood is everlasting. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But in Hebrews 8.3, every priest is appointed for what? To offer sacrifice. Hence, it is necessary for our high priest to have a sacrifice. Well, what is it? Cattle, sheep, and goats? Of course not. It's his body. He is both priest and victim. He is the temple and the altar. Again, all of the spokes converge upon the hub of Christ. He is the fulfillment of every aspect of the temple. And so what you see is the Eucharist is the air you breathe when you read the book of Hebrews. It is the water. It is the environment. It is the liturgical setting. And when you compare it, to the liturgy of St. Mark that goes back to the first century. Not only words, but phrases and images as well. And the whole idea that the pre-Levitical form of the priesthood is Melchizedek, the first man to be called priest in the Hebrew Bible. But wait a minute, what's his offering? Is it cattle, sheep, and goats? No, it's bread and wine. What a coincidence, you know? (laughs) And so in the earthly Salem, later the earthly Jerusalem, you have a prototype of what is going on now in the heavenly Jerusalem, but not just there, but on earth as it is in heaven, in the Mass, the Eucharist, where the high priest is working through the priests in order to bring to us the resurrected body to deify us and to transform us. But, you know, the thing is, and you mentioned this earlier near the beginning, we're not going to become saints by how effectively we argue. We're not going to become saints by how we over overpower our opponents and all of that kind of thing. You know, what we find in Christ is the path to true holiness. And I think this is probably the best part of the book. The biggest challenge in writing it and now living it out is to discover that holiness does not consist in getting bigger and better and smarter. No, holiness consists in getting smaller and closer to Jesus. And he must increase, I must decrease. And that's the only safe route to heaven. That's the only true path to holiness. Because if holiness is proper to God alone, and his will for us is to make us holy, then we've got to let go and let God. We've got to do what we can do, which might be 9%. But we've also got to acknowledge what I can't do, which is over 91%. God, make up for what I lack. Give me what I need. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Then I'm safe. But otherwise, I mean, people come to me, Mike, and say, oh, you know, Dr. Hahn, you know, uh, 
And I, and I say to God, you know, they want so much from me, but I've got nothing but you. And he whispers, that's enough. And it is. You know, Elijah in the cave, the wind that came and busted the stones, the Lord was not in. The fire as well. The earthquake. No, it's the still small voice of the Lord Jesus and the Blessed Virgin. You know, that's where Elijah found the Lord God Almighty. And so we don't want the Wizard of Oz standing behind some curtain with all of the fire, you know, to terrify us in a kind of psychologically self-induced mode. I think that's just wrong-headed. On the other hand, once we get holiness right, once we put God first, once we see that holiness belongs to God and God alone, then suddenly all of the liturgical battles, all of the issues over the Novus Ordo in Latin or, you know, Gregorian chant, what, what do you wear, what kind of architecture, what kind of music, I mean, those things are going to fall like so many dominoes. Once you get God at the center and His holiness as the thing that defines Him alone, and yet the only thing that He made us for was to become saints, then suddenly I am convinced all of these battles will be won without even a single shot being fired. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want. I, you know, I'm so sick and tired. You know, in our audience, we're we're mostly young adults in this audience. Uh, I say we now that I'm 40. The USCCB no longer classifies me as a young adult. Very sad. Very sad. But I'm uh, still going to World Youth Day. Um, but uh, no, we have we have a lot of young adults, and a lot of them are very very frustrated more than anything else over the liturgy wars. Not because they don't care; it's because they care. But they're just. It's like it's like. Everyone is majoring on the minors, and they they just feel put out. And then you know you got good people on either side of the you know TLM ordinariat, um, you know all this different stuff. Uh, Novus Ordo, you know, well can't you just have the Novus Ordo in Latin and be happy and be done with it? And all the kind of the stuff that's going on. And it's like but we are though honestly we are missing holiness. We are missing that that sacred character uh, at the core of every thing that we believe. The the yeah, so I, I was just thinking the other day about um, Hebrews chapter 12. It was uh, one of our second readings a few Sundays ago, and Father David Huss preached this amazing homily where uh, you are not approached that which can be touched, a blazing fire, gloomy darkness, a storm and a trumpet blast, and a voice speaking. I'm not memorizing this. I'm reading it off the page. Uh, no, you've approached Mount Zion, the city of the living God, a heavenly, the heavenly Jerusalem, countless angels and festival gathering, and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And you think about this, like this is a beautiful, intense vision of what is happening right now, right, in the heavenly liturgy that we get to participate in, right? This is the once for all. We're not re-crucifying Christ. The moment, like when I hear people like um, Dr. James White, you know, he says these things, like, oh, Catholics, you know, you're going to the cross, re and I'm like, come on, like, this is it. The, the Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas says it so beautifully in the catechism, I'm going to paraphrase, but... The sacraments demonstrate what went before, namely the Paschal Mystery. They communicate what that won for us, namely grace, and it anticipates that which waits for us, namely future glory. And you have all of that there in the Mass. All of that is contained. Like, it's the whole point of the Lamb's Supper. Like, that's it. Right there. If, if Christ is a high priest forever, then he is offering his own glorified humanity to the Father for our sake, and he's offering himself to us for the Father's sake. You know, and then suddenly you begin to sense, okay, then holiness is what it's all about. You know, the liturgical skirmishes matter, but they don't matter as much as discovering this. And I, you know, just parenthetically, I would say that when it comes to the Mass, I do have preferences. 
But I strongly affirm that the Novus Ordo is valid. And if it's valid, it's inexhaustible. It's all you need to become a saint. But on the other hand, I do tend to go to our parish mass at noon on Sundays, which is the traditional Latin mass. Uh, And I do find it to be more reverent. I find it to be more ancient. I find it to be more theocentric. But, you know, it's sort of like holy matrimony is a sacrament. And my son Jeremiah is now Father Jeremiah. He's got holy orders. You know, the Council of Trent said, this is the holy place. That is the holy of holies. They're both holy. So, you know, start stop targeting one or the other. Appreciate either or both, you know. But above all, I just think that if we see the sacrifice of Christ in the Mass, we're not seeing what James White sees. Oh, they keep repeating the sacrifice. No, you can't repeat something if it's never-ending. And Christ's priesthood and his sacrifice are everlasting. So we're not repeating his sacrifice again and again. No, it's once for all, perpetuated. It's a perpetual sacrifice, not once for all, over and done at Calvary. And you've, you've heard me say this before, that if you were standing at Calvary, you would not have said, well, I just saw a holy sacrifice. As a Jew, you would know that a sacrifice can only take place in the temple on an altar. Jesus is crucified outside the walls. There's no temple with an altar. You'd witness an execution, a Roman, perhaps a martyrdom, if you think he's innocent. But in fact, it's only a sacrifice if the Eucharist that he instituted is where the sacrifice is initiated. Then at Calvary, it's consummated. Then in heaven, it's perpetuated with the resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. This is so much more than doctrine or Catholic talking points. This is the mysterium fidei. This is the mystery of faith. And it means to be, it needs to be studied, but it also needs even more to be contemplated. And the more we ponder it, the more we're like, this is just too good to be true. But it is the truth. And, you know, it's amazing how unamazed we are, but it's just an invitation to come back again and again and realize no human could have ever invented the Catholic faith. Nobody could have ever perpetuated this institution of celibate leaders, most of whom are just constantly stumbling in the dark. But on (laughs) earth, as it is in heaven, you know, he will get us home. He will make us holy. Uh, I don't know. I think Constantine could have invented it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, also, I have to thank you for um, a book y'all just published with Emmaus Academic. I'm going to forget the title because I don't... Do I have it here with me? No, I don't. I have it at work. But... um, it's uh, it's the uh, it was an article that was going to be in the Catholic Encyclopedia in 1955, and it didn't get published because that the the one on the the redemption. Yeah, what is redemption by Felipe La Trinité? Yes. Yeah, so I I read that for Holy Cross Sunday or Holy Cross um, Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. But uh, the the I, I did a talk on the atonement, and I all I wanted to do was clarify from so many of my parishioners. And I hear it, I used to say it, you know, Jesus was punished for my sin, but like that, how he clarifies the retributive justice element and just kind of walks you through Aquinas and it kind of points like a little Jansenism coming in and it kind of became a very rhetorical device and then got out of hand. But um, the the notion of, of describing, like you said, the, the vicariousness, all of these different things. And then, you know, I'm giving this talk in my church at the lectern. And right next to us is the altar, and on top of the altar is the relic of the true cross that we just got. And um, we're a, they had just come back from a procession against plague and pestilence that Father David had led. And, you know, so we've been venerating the, the, the relic of the true cross, and then we do the thing. And then you connect it to 
the liturgy. Like you can't not talk about all of this stuff and then not connect it to liturgy. And the whole notion is it hangs on that sacrifice, right? Like if you you watched an innocent man die that day, but because of Holy Thursday, we now get to participate in this holy sacrifice of the lamb. So it's awesome. It's stunning. It's beautiful. It's true. It's powerful, etc. You know, <laughs> it's all like, the things. Yeah, I mean, we 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 need to renew our devotion as well as our comprehension of this because then it's just let the let the chips fall where they may once we come to understand it once we communicate it clearly people are going to be blown away and the holy spirit is going to be given so much more room to work and sanctify us yeah amen amen all righty well that's all the time we got i was hoping to get to romans 9 through 11 but we'll say that for some other time. time uh thank you so much for coming on the show again the book is holy is his name the transforming power of god's holiness in scripture Dr. Han, thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care, Mike, and keep up the great work. <laughs> Thanks.